ARU comes from the Abbey Museum, Maine's first Smithsonian affiliate, founded in 1928 at Sir Dimon Spring in Acadia National Park, and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we have uh, a familiar guest and former co-host, Maria Girard, uh, the member of the Penobscot tribe, and is also um, on reach. This is a coordinated monthly test of the emergency alert system for the state of Maine. If this had been an actual emergency, official messages would have followed the alert tone. This concludes this test of the emergency alert system. You know, truth and reconciliation uh, shows um, and covered various... uh, phases of this, uh, starting in 2010, I think that was the first show. Um, so I'm going to ask Maria to sort of bring us up to date on on that background, how that started. Well, I'll do the best that I can. I joined REACH um, only about a year and a half ago, and Maine Wabanaki REACH stands for Reconciliation, Engagement, Advocacy, Change, and Healing. And it's a new name for an old organization. Um, Originally, REACH had its roots in um, a training group, an um, ICWA training group, Indian Child Welfare Act. And um, in its beginnings, um, the tribal social services, human services staff got together with um, State of Maine Social Services, Department of Human Services staff, and uh, they were addressing a problem that had cropped up, um, the problem of um, following the law of the Indian Child Welfare Act, and it seemed that Maine had gotten some sort of demerit in in their ability to follow that law um, accurately, and so this, um, this training group was formed And then after the group um, spent some time together, um, it was was apparent that there were some blocks there that really prevented their work from moving forward. And as they um, took the time to know each other and to understand where these blocks may be occurring, 
um, they realized that they needed to do um, some sort of uh, real truth-telling around the history that all these people were bringing to the table. And so it was that group, the Indian Child Welfare um, Training Group, that started the convening group. So we've morphed a few times, and the convening group's purpose was to um, to conceptualize and create the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which they did in 2012. So, um, and that is Reach's biggest claim to fame so far. So Reach is the organization that that conceptualized and created the TRC. So the uh, the mandate for the TRC was signed uh, by the chiefs and the governor of the state uh, in 2012. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and then there's oh by the way, Carol, since you chimed in, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna, and uh, and I think Maria's uh, finished with her uh, background. Uh, so, Carol, uh, if you can tell us just a little bit about yourself and, and how you became involved with the uh, with the commission. Okay, so that goes back away and slightly challenging to memory in terms of what motivated me at that particular moment. But I've been an organizational development consultant for about 20-some years and interested in processes of change and how change comes about and how it doesn't and how very often even people of great intent wanting things to shift in different directions get stuck. And so I've been very interested in following different ways that people are innovating, having difficult conversations and trying to change a dominant narrative or trying to change and heal from particular harms that have been done. So I was very interested in the truth and reconciliation process that was um, innovated in other parts of the world and particularly became well-known through the famous South African um, TRC um, with Desmond Tutu and Mel- Nelson Mandela sort of authorizing the creation of that and how it really did make profound changes in that country. And so when I heard that there was a TRC that was happening in Maine, I became intrigued with that and wondered whether or not there was any way that my particular skills could contribute to that. I also, when the um, email came across my desk, as many do, sort of announcing something new, there was a a photo and a click on to a video of Denise Alvader, who was telling her story. And although I hadn't met Denise, we had had some interactions, some contact with each other around some other things. And so... I watched that video, and for the next two weeks, I couldn't think of anything else and asked a Passamaquoddy friend if she thought that I might have something to contribute to the process, and she encouraged me to apply. Wow, that's great. Uh, now, the, the commissioners were uh, was actually seat, were they seated in February of 2012? February of 2013, 2013, and that's when the clock started ticking. So we had a mandate of 27 months. And we're now in the 26th month of that 27th month period. It is to be noted that the mandate also said that we could request from the signatories permission to extend for an additional six months. And as we came along in the process, we realized two things. One, an additional six months wouldn't substantively 
uh, change what we were doing, and an additional six months would cost a very lot of money. And since the, the commission was formed without any funding from either the state or the tribes, and we had to find ways to support the staff of both organizations, we felt like we should finish within the 27th month period and do the best job that we could, knowing that no matter what we did, it was really only a beginning to the tip of an iceberg of a very deep, deeply rooted problem. Yeah. Now, the, uh, the commission, now you've had um, a number of, uh, what do you call it, site visits? Is that how you refer to that? You've well, we visited the communities multiple times, um, all five tribal communities. We visited them all many, many times, and we also held um, uh, forums in other parts of the state where people from um, non-Native people who were involved in the child welfare system had an opportunity to come forward and give their statements. So we have all put many, many miles on our cars. Yeah, now... Uh Maria, I, I understand that uh, your position with REACH was to actually um, do something with the community, sort of go in there and talk to them and get things lined yes. up? Or? Yes. Well, I was originally hired by REACH to be a community organizer for Penobscot Nation. And each of the tribal communities had community organizers whose primary purpose was to prepare the communities for the TRC visits. It was acknowledged that the the attention and the presence of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was essentially destabilizing our communities a little bit because we were asking them asking people to to open up and and to share with us stories that um, oftentimes have never even shared with anybody before. And so we recognized that it was, in essence, destabilizing the communities a little bit, and we wanted to make sure that everyone was okay and that everyone was supported in that. And so there were a number of um, educational initiatives early on to talk about um, some of the concepts of um, historical or intergenerational trauma and um, sharing with our communities our our collective history, and, um, you know, just like everyone doesn't know every aspect of United States history, um, tribal folks don't know all the aspects of their tribal histories either. And so um, giving them the historical information, um, being there to support them, um, hosting talking circles, in our peace and healing circles in our community, and just essentially letting people know that we were going to be there to support them throughout. Yeah. And it, and I think that before you you did that, I think you did some sort of uh, history uh, research, historic background research. Right? Well, um, yes. So I was originally hired as, as a community organizer for Penobscot Nation. It's, you know, I've been a community organizer and for that uh, community for a couple of decades now, so that was an easy fit. But um, then I was asked to um, serve REACH as a health and wellness coordinator, which for me felt like a little bit of a stretch at first because I'm a historian, <laughs> and um, I never suspected that I'd be working around health and wellness. But for REACH, it was you know the perfect fit because of the focus on 
the historical and intergenerational trauma. And so, you know, I already had a good body of knowledge about what that looked like in the state of Maine. And I did spend some time um, researching further um, those um, instances or those points in time in our collective history, tribal state history, where um, we can see evidence of that that sort of historical trauma throughout. Yeah. Now, Carol, um, as a commissioner, were the the commissioners uh, given any sort of orientation or training in historical trauma or whatever? We were given minimal training in historical trauma, but several of us had had some um, understanding of it. Sandy Whitehawk, who's done a lot of this kind of work in Minneapolis, where she's from, came with a deep understanding of the work of Maria Yellow Horse Braveheart. We were all briefed on that. Uh, Sandy really holds a very deep and sensitive understanding of what this is about from the inside out in that she was adopted out when she was 18 months herself and has created an organization to help people come back to their communities, to find their communities and come back. So she was very helpful um, overall. We did have some training as well with two people who had been part of the um, TRC experience in Greensboro, North Carolina, and they came up and also briefed us. Um, we spent some time being trained by them. Now, you mentioned uh, Maria Yellow Horse Braveheart. Is is there like a, a book or something that she's written? or She not only has written a book, and Maria can give you more background, but she also has founded an organization, which I believe Maria is called Takini, where she um, basically is trying to help people across the nation understand the wounds of historical or intergenerational trauma and how it affects everyone. She's a professor, I believe, at Columbia University. Is that correct, Maria? I believe so, yes. And and she's the director of the Takini Institute, and it's um, T-A-K-I-N-I. Okay. Um, no, it, it sort of... Rem- brings back to my mind uh, the last time that I can remember that we had uh, this conversation was uh, Matt Dunlop was here, Secretary of State, and uh, he was mentioning uh, some of the commissioners, other commissioners, and and I guess the, uh, what is it, Sandra, what's her last name? Sandy Whitehawk. Sandy Whitehawk uh, from Minnesota? Yes. Yeah, and uh, I guess she was thinking of doing the same thing in Minnesota at mm-hmm, some point, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then I guess because of the uh, because of their um, their their stories, I guess uh, I'm not going to call them legends uh, because of their stories. Uh, she felt that this uh, healing process uh, was to come from the east. When, when she. Um she had been working trying to develop a similar process in Minneapolis, in, in Minnesota, and she heard about this effort and was encouraged to apply. She had been here in Maine working with Mabinaki tribes several years ago, had made some relationships here, and people reached out to her when the um, solicitation of, for, for recruitment for commissioners came about. And so she applied, and at that point she said she had the realization that, of course, this needs to start in the East. And um, I think that's profound, especially people of the dawn starting in the east. Um, hopefully it will be something that will get other tribe and states' attentions and perhaps can be replicated in other places. Yeah, and I, and I, 
also it goes back to the the uh, prophecies, right, Maria? Yeah, that's right. Um, this is you know a piece of this work that that really excites me, and I, I speak of it often when I'm doing um, public presentations or engagements. Um, the the traditional stories that Carol's referring to, that Sandy refers to, um, tell us that there's going to be a period of great healing um, and that this great healing is going to begin in the east and, and sweep across this country. And we know that it's going to be around this time frame. There's so many ancient cultures um, throughout time who have referenced this period of time. And so we know that, um, you know, something really amazing is supposed to be happening. And our traditional stories tell us that, you know, there's supposed to be a great healing that's going to start in the East. And, um, you know, I think that our our name, Wabanaki, is, is pretty significant and profound in that um, respect because, of course, Wabanaki is, um, is uh, Wabanaki in our language refers to um, the land of the dawn the, and, and the dawn being the, the period of time where the, the first light you know, touches Turtle Island here. And so we're perfectly positioned. And uh, it seems you know, we're, we're doing the work that we're supposed to be doing at the point of time that we're supposed to be doing it. Yeah, yeah Sandy keeps reminding us that we're the answer to our ancestors' prayers. And we need to be aware of that. And that creates a pretty awesome container for the work that we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And now the, the commission, the, the very first uh, community you went to was where? We went to Pleasant Point, Tobiac. Okay. And uh, did you hear uh, people's stories at that point? So let me talk to you a little bit about how the process has morphed and changed. Okay. And one of the things, two, two things that I want to point out from the beginning. One is the mandate was very explicit about the fact that the commission would be invited into the communities and that the communities would basically shape how the commission came in. And so we um, first went to Sabayak in September just to sort of have a get-to-know-you kind of visiting, introductions, showing who we were, all of that. So that happened in September. And um, then we went back in November with the intention of opening up the statement gathering process. And we learned a lot in those few days, um, one of which is that um, our numbers were intimidating to people. We arrived with a number of people who had been trained as statement gatherers, uh, some from local communities nearby and some from um, downstate, and <clears throat> mostly white people. I think only there may have been only one or two Native people who had taken the statement gathering training. And so that created, as Maria said, some feelings of instability in the community. The other thing I think that was a big lesson was that many of us had visited the Canadian TRC and watched their process and were also aware that in most TRCs across the globe, they're pretty public, um, they're pretty public activities where people state the truth out loud and um, there's, there's something about that public aspect which is supposed to be healing. We found that it wasn't. 
Um, we were prepared to take individual statements, but we also thought at some point we would also take public statements. We quickly learned that that was not appropriate in this case. And one of the things from the very beginning that Sandy and Isitanamuk, another one of our commissioners, talked about was how we needed to indigenize this process. And so given that sensibility and the mandate that the communities would dictate how we arrived, we quickly moved to having the statement gathering process be much more friendly. Initially, we thought that the statement providers, the people who had stories to tell, would come to us in some sort of a, a communal community place. And we learned that people really wanted us to come to their homes. And so that's what we did. And so I would say the majority, uh, the large majority of statements were done in people's homes, um, often with a commissioner present but very often just um, our research director, Rachel, um, Rachel George, would make many trips, um, and we would accompany her as much as we could to be present and to validate and to give people the feeling of being witnessed by somebody who was in a position um, of, I don't know, some kind of stature of being a commissioner. Is there any sort of um, thoughts as to why this is uh, so different from the Canadian process, uh, what what were the uh, the surround? Yeah, yeah. Many, many, many. So sure. the Canadian process started with a public apology from the premier, and it also involved um, a method of reparations, which kicked up a lot of um, controversy because the way that the reparations were distributed was not um, unified or equal. Our process started with no acknowledgement or, or apology. I think the acknowledgement is in the fact that the governor signed this, but it's not within a deeper acknowledgement from the dominant culture of what's happened to Abenaki people. So that was absent. And I think a lot of people were very disturbed about the fact that there were um, not reparations included in the um, in the considerations here, and um, I think also the fact that there was very little funding, very little staff, very little opportunity to prepare people as deeply as the folks in Canada did. They had, I think, a $50 million budget and felt like that was too small for their effort, which, of course, was nationwide. But they had a budget, they had a staff, um, and they had five years. Okay. And I would say that if we were starting now, we would be starting in a very different place. There's a different level of readiness. There's a different level of trust that's emerging now that wasn't there two years ago. And I think it's because we have kept showing up. And I think as we've gone back in the last two months into the communities to share our initial findings and recommendations, people are saying that they're feeling validated and heard and the level of conversation in those meetings has gone to a very different place in terms of people being more willing to be um, just really, uh, really, really able to express their outrage, their anger, their hurt. Um, it, 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 it's a very different conversation than what we started with two years ago. And I think, Maria, you've been in a couple of those meetings where we've shared our findings and the difference in the climate when um, when those conversations begin after that sharing. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, our, our, 
our communities have, um, you know, suffered enormous exploitation. And so I think there was a natural tendency to be skeptical about this process and about these people coming in and, um, you know, digging up all this this information. And so a lot of people, you know, would, would be very reserved around that. And I think that once once we were able to get a glimpse of um, what the what the TRC heard, what their findings were, um, there was um, you know an overall uh, sense of relief that we were heard, and uh, I think that was the, you know my first comment upon hearing the um, the findings was um, gratitude um, that we had been heard. I think uh, from my own perspective, um, coming from the Penobscot community, uh, there's a certain level of uh, a culture of secrecy mm-hmm. in our communities. And that's, that's because we've learned to uh, not tell everybody about what's happened in our personal lives. And our, because th- there's no trust. There's yeah. really totally no trust. Well, and such an indoctrination of fear, too, over the years, I think. And, sh- and shame. Um, you know, when you've been abused and tortured as a child, it's hard not to internalize that as something is wrong with me. Um, and it becomes very difficult to tell it. But according to Maria um, Yellow Horse Braveheart again, her thesis is that by telling the story, it begins to lose some of its power over you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I think that uh, by telling the story in a public in a public way to get that out there to uh, statewide, so that people can understand what's happened to our communities, I think that lends to a level of understanding uh, within the majority community. Right, and, and that's one of the things that's happening. That in some ways, it's. Um, it's, it's a pleasant surprise to me. I didn't know that the response to this would be so great. But at this point, Reach has trained, has had 250 people come to their ally workshops and trainings. And people are hungry for more, and they're hungry to know how it is that they can do something. You know, they're really eager to take action about that. Right. I was just going to add that um, one of the the big values that, I see in in the TRC process for um, the tribal communities is um, that sharing together and realizing that everyone has a story to tell and um, being able to acknowledge the need for healing in our communities that, you know, the, the way that our communities had been assaulted and, and broken for so long over the years have you know, caused less than desirable circumstances. And I think without a full understanding and appreciation of that history, people tend to think, you know, something's wrong with us and it's all our fault. So um, it's been really, really empowering to to hold each other's stories and to acknowledge that every person carries some sort of story we may not even know. I mean, some of the stories I heard, um, you know, it never occurred to me that, that people were carrying those stories. And so it just makes us um, look at and appreciate and, and hold each other in a different way. One of, the, one of the comments that I'll hold forever was at our seating ceremony, 
back in February of 2013, before the process had even started, just by being at that event, one of the youth who was there participating said, I understand the community differently now. I understand the impact mm -hmm. of what's come before. So I think just the act of naming it mm -hmm. uh, is sometimes um, validating for people. Right. Now, you, you've had um, a number of public uh, meetings to date. Now, I'm not sure how many you've had or where they were. So right now we're in the process of having what we're calling statewide events, which are, in a sense, public meetings. And um, we will have five altogether. We've had three. The first was in Bangor. We then went to Presque Isle and Machias last week. Next week we'll be in Portland, and we'll finish up in Augusta. And the idea is to bring forward our initial findings and recommendations to get some input feedback from the public before we finalize. Sort of like, you know, in, uh, in, in state government when people go out and they have hearings before they finalize a document. We wanted to be sure that we had um, made people familiar with what it is that we're bringing forward and to have people have an opportunity to either tell us what we were missing or to take exception to what we're saying or to validate what it is that we're um, putting forward as our findings and recommendations. Can you share some of those findings and recommendations? Sure. But before I do that, I'm just wanting to say the excitement is that in Bangor, we had 150 people show up, standing room only in the room. In Presque Isle, we had about 25. And in Machias last week, we had 65. Um, and very lively discussions after that. Well, great. <clears throat> yeah, so, so far... Um, and we've heard some we've heard some good things that we're going to add, and some changes, not anything substantive, but some changes in tone or whatever. So um, yeah. So what I would like to do before I start talking about the key findings and recommendations is that um, we realize that we're coming in on top of other people who've done this kind of study before, and there have been recommendations made before and that a lot of what we've heard is not anything new or different. So at one level, um, you could repeat what was said before, but then that becomes sort of an act of, uh, <laughs> why are you doing this? It didn't work the last time. People made these recommendations and nothing happened. And so what's underneath it? What's stopping uh, what should be relatively um, uncomplex technical-type fixes to not work. So lots of recommendations over the years, and we're hearing it again, and we'll make it again, that there needs to be more training, but substantively different kind of training, that there need to be more native foster homes, and that relates to some of the holdup of funds that should be available and somehow are stuck somewhere. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just those, those kinds of things that are almost obvious and that you don't have to have a two-year commission to although it is helpful to have the data coming up through the voices of the people in terms of um, what it is that people are saying is needed. But what we really felt was that we needed to look at what those things were that were blocking sort of what the folks in the um, ICWA, ICWA work group discovered after they had started their trainings, and although they could see their trainings were make a di making a difference, there was still something blocking the system. And so what we are naming as those blocks is the continuing institutional racism, which is a result of the structural racism that's part of our dominant um, 
culture and society, that the continuing um, sort of uh, entangled uh, jurisdictional issues between the feds, the tribes, and the state, until those issues of um, contested sovereignty between the state and the tribe get sorted out, that ICWA and its implementation is going to continue to be compromised, and that the impact of the intergenerational trauma that we've talked about, that the past is the present, and in some ways the past is also influencing the future, until that's more readily and fully understood, and until some ways are found to um, redress and create healing opportunities for individuals, families, and communities, that these kinds of um, issues will continue to um, bedevil the tribes. Okay. So I'll stop there. I can go further, but I'm just wanting to give a pause for you to ask me any questions about that before I go into the more specific findings. Okay. Was there any thought as to how to address any of these? So one of the reasons that we called the report Beyond the Mandate is that we feel like this work that we've begun is really just the tip of the beginning and that there will need to be continued mechanisms for ongoing conversations and ongoing will to look at this and, and do the kind of um, hard work that's going to be necessary to keep people at the table to work through some of these ongoing, um, really deep, deep-seated issues. And it seems to me that you're going to need to develop uh, lots of uh, allies for this work. And that's why the REACH group, Wabanaki REACH, has been so actively involved all over the state and why it's so heartening to see so many people responding. And even last week, the three of us were all at those series of hearings last week before the Judiciary Committee. I think there were 20 or so REACH allies in the room who have um, committed to writing uh, op-ed letters, to showing up at hearings, to doing whatever they can to um, add their voices and to say that people are, are ready and wanting to see some changes made. Okay, that's great. Um... Okay, so I mean, there's. Uh, are you looking at? What are you looking at for the, uh, for the racism, in, in the institutional and the structural? Well, you know, one of the things that is, um, we 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 have a narrow purview in terms of our mandate, and so what we're saying is that the kinds of trainings that we're recommending for people involved with child welfare, not just DHHS, but lawyers and guardian litem and whatever, has to be of a different order in terms of not being a toolbox sort of checkoff training that you go to for half a day and then you go back to your office and you're really not changed except that you've taken the training and you can check it off. So the kind of training that really um, has people begin to do some self-reflection and exploration and understanding of the dynamics that are going on and their own implicit biases and what structural racism is. Many people, unless unless you live it, um, white people don't see it because the structures are, are set up for white people to move through the system relatively easily. Right. Not for all, but for, for more than people of color, for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm certain they don't know what racism is in general. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, g- moving on from that, uh, you mentioned uh, jurisdictional issues. Is there a way to address those, you think? 
<laughs> the key question here. The key question here. That's the question. And it's really interesting that we, since we uh, put these findings together in late March, early April, the situation is getting more strained. Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes in, in my, this is my own, uh, my own view as an organizational consultant, has nothing to do with the commission or whatever, is that sometimes things get worse before they get better. And that that's the the wedge that um, causes the breakthrough is that, and it's hard because people suffer in that. But I think that there's some um, history that points to an experience that points to sometimes things have to get worse. You know, sort of like what, what what's the real bottom before the change comes about? Mm-hmm. Well, I like so, that uh, I like that terminology you used. Uh, wedge that causes the breakthrough. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, it, can, it feels pretty bleak right now, and I think that the tensions are, in fact, um, in some ways, usefully drawing the line so that people can see what it is that the actual differences are. The differences are becoming clearer, and that's another thing that has to happen is that the, um, you have to really understand the... the the depth of the conflict um, before you can begin to bridge it. And people have to understand where each side is in terms of um, what the what the negotiables are and what the non-negotiables are. And I think that that's being drawn more clearly right now than it has been over the past number of years. Or maybe I'm just more well, tuned in now yeah, because well, of I my think work that's, on the commission. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the, the process right now and the... Yeah. Go oh. ahead, Maria. You got something I can see. Well, I'm just uh, when Carol said that the situation's getting more strained. Um, you know, the first thought that went through my mind is um, that the situation is corroborating the findings. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, this is this is our world, <laughs> yeah. and now, yeah, the situations that are unfolding in the state really illustrate really what we've all been talking about and. And uh, trying to work through and, you know, going back to those old stories and prophecies again, you know, the Hopi always had the prophecy about the phoenix rising out of the ashes, which mm-hmm. implied that there was going to have to be some ashes. <laughs> yeah, which none of us want to see because of what that what that means to people and communities and institutions. But yeah. I think we've been in the ashes for a long time. Well, it's a way, I guess it's it's however you, a, you want to look at it. Sometimes right? you need a forest fire to create the clearing. <laughs> burning off of the old and, and the, the useless and growing yeah. new. Yeah. yeah. So new it, it just seems like all of this stuff, like this 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 racism uh is at the core. I mean all this other stuff I think emanates mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the jurisdictional and yep. the the intergenerational trauma and you know, this all emanates from this core racism. I just I just Which we're also seeing amplified in our in our society right now in terms of um, what's going on with, with police and black men and black boys. And, yeah, and um, senators, main state senators. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, had to get that in there. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So all, all of this is sort of, it's um, almost like um, uh, being amplified and um, blown up in like cartoon proportions in terms of how how bad it is that, people are really beginning to see some of it in ways that it hasn't been fully seen before. Yeah, and, and you're right. You know, that that has to happen. And so. I think a lot of, um, you know, I, I just am reflecting on 
the term racism and and um, you know wondering about the the over application of it because I happen to think that um, for the most part people are doing the best they can based on the information that they have yeah. but that most people have no idea about tribal state relations. You might read something in the newspaper which doesn't fully reflect tribal perspectives. And so the media is not our friend and it never has been. And when all the information that people in the state are receiving comes from mainstream media, it's skewed. Mm-hmm. It's um it's skewed because oftentimes it's factually inaccurate. Oftentimes it doesn't represent um, the full perspectives of the tribes. And because our history together is just so, so deep and so entangled that it's hard to, to understand these um, issues that crop up because they have, you know, really strong and deep colonial underpinnings. It's all, it's all connected. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, and it's, um, a lot of motivation comes from fear. You know, I think about in the state house and the people who are in positions to make decisions, not even knowing um, the history of us together in this place mm-hmm. and not um, having full understandings of, you know, such complexities such as the main Indian land claims or things like that. And yet they continue to make decisions based on fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I think that's why the um, the reach workshops have have had such receptivity is that many people do realize that they haven't known and they leave these workshops saying we never learned that in school why didn't we learn that in school and there's an anger in terms of having been um having not having had information withheld and this goes back to the important work that you did donna in the legislature in terms of the uh, ld217 in terms of the... Um, 219. 219. I was close, but um, 219 in terms of... It's been of, so long, I forget. <laughs> 291, right? The, 291, the that's it. 291. <laughs> there, there needs to yeah. be um, a widespread education, and it's not being implemented in the fullness of the intent, but some kids are getting more than they were before. How it's how it's being implemented, I'm not sure how well, but then there's still this generation of adults who don't know, and so I think the the reach um, the reach program to uh, inform and educate is a really important component, and hopefully, we'll go forward with um, a lot of a lot of uh, energy and um, thrust. Yeah, I mean the the danger in that is there's just so many fires to put out, exactly. so many things to do. You spread yourself really, really thin and become ineffective. So yeah, yeah, uh, and yeah. that's you know that's what happens. Um, okay, so what was your next? So the key findings, those yes. are the core issues, and then okay. we move on to key findings. And the main key finding is that Native children are continuing to be removed at a disproportionate rate through 2014, which in our minds um, really uh, corroborates the intention of um, the Indian Child Welfare Act passed in 1978, which was an effort to um, counter the continuing genocide represented by children being taken from one group and transferred to another, which is part of the UN Convention on um, 1948 UN Convention on, on Genocide, which defined genocide. And two of those um, sub, there were five five pieces of the of the definition, but two 
really apply to this body of work, and one is Article 2, Section B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of any group, and the other, Article 2, Section E, the forcible transfer of children of one group to another group. And so this disproportionate rate, uh, basically, we think falls within that um, that definition, and then what happens to children often when they're out of community and out of care in terms of bodily and physically physical harm, um, bodily and mental emotional harm um, goes with that. Not that all foster homes, many foster homes couldn't be more loving, but when children are disrupted from and taken from their communities and their culture, it has a it has a psychological and emotional impact. Okay. So that's uh, that's the key finding, or um, those are two key findings. And let me look at my notes here to see because uh, there are several more. So one of the things that we noticed is that um, there's a difference around what constitutes safety in the minds of the tribal child welfare workers and the state child welfare workers, and. One of the things that we want to underline is the fact that child safety from harm of any sort is of paramount importance to the tribes as well as to the state child welfare workers. But the tribes are also considering um, the well-being of the children in terms of keeping them in their context of their community and their culture. So there was some, um, in some of the statements, the phrase came up that um, DHHS would put a child's safety first and ICWA second, where that seemed to be a false dichotomy in terms of for the tribes. Um, it was both the child's physical, emotional um, safety as well as the child's safe well-being in terms of being part of their, their kin group and part of their community. Now, I find that interesting because uh, state of Maine actually uh, adopted the ICWA yeah, I forget what year that was. Uh, it's in the 2000s, I think, because I think Donald Soctomo put that bill forward for the state to to adopt that. Right. And they, and they did. And what really uh, piques my interest here is that the state also took some of the um, recommendations, like keeping the child within their extended family, and put it in their own uh, exactly. laws. Exactly. So- what the, what the next year leading to the next finding, Donna, which okay. since 1978, and especially since 1999, when the ICWA work group formed and began doing the training and having some influence in terms of some policies and other kinds of things, there have been really big improvements in compliance and training. And there are also still some areas where there's a need for continued vigilance and care. So one of the complicating factors is that ICWA was passed in 1978 and the Adoption and Safe Families Act was passed in the 1990s sometime. That's also a federal act that comes with penalties that are financial where ICWA doesn't. The the, the benefit of the Adoption and Safe Families Act is it recognized what ICWA recognized, is that kinship is paramount and important. And what they were trying to do was to move children through the foster care system as quickly as as practically possible and to have children have some sort of permanency status being in the continued sort of limbo of foster care. The difference here is that the Adoption and Safe Families Act 
had a 15-month timeline. And so that ran against some tribal um, tribal cultural uh, perspectives in that 15 months is a, long, is a very short time to really help a family get its act together so that re- reunification can be made. And that the tribes also don't believe in termination of parental rights and don't want to see their children adopted out. So the 15-month timeline is short, and it puts pressure on an already strained system. Yeah, and it seems to me that this termination of parental rights is also a genocide tool. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that um, uh, Bright Light is that Maine has not been strict about enforcing the adoption of Children Family Act either, so the 15-month guideline isn't strictly held. But the systems, the mechanisms in the state are set up to comply more to that law because it does have financial penalties, and the state loses money if it doesn't follow those guidelines, where there are no penalties of any sort if ICWA isn't followed. So we're talking about economics as opposed to the... Well, you're talking, yeah, you're talking about the financial driver. Yeah. So another piece that we found was that um, identification of Native children, even by the state's own admission, is not happening uniformly. So there were state reviews in 2006 and 2009 where the state acknowledged that in an intake situation, not all workers ask the question about whether a child has Native heritage. And so um, that would indicate that there are probably more children in the system that are identified and more children eligible for ICWA that have been identified. I would like to just get in here for a second. Um, In my position on the Judiciary Committee, I found that a lot of the state judges that we were were, uh, reinstating or bringing on uh, were not familiar at all with the Indian Child Welfare Act. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's changed somewhat. Um, in fact, Charlotte, our executive director, and Penthia Burns and Esther Atian, who are the co-directors of REACH, were invited to give a presentation at the, um, the judges' annual meeting this year. And there are many judges who are very eager for this. But you are so good, Donna, you're leading me to the next finding, which is the tribal courts and tribal advocacy create very positive outcomes for children and families. The tribal courts, in fact, work well. They have a lower docket. Penobscot, for instance, has a a wellness court where people get a lot of attention and um, treatment plans, reunification plans are developed and followed. The rub here is that neither the Mi'kmaq nor the Maliseet communities have tribal courts. Tribal court was authorized some years ago for the Maliseet community, but has not been implemented, and I think that's mostly because of funding issues. Uh, I, I'm, I don't know about that, but um, okay. So the tribal courts—they have an excellent wellness program. Do you do you think that uh, maybe this is another area that uh, the state in general can take a lesson from the from the tribes? Mm-hmm. 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 Yep. And the thing is, you know, you talk about tribal wellness and wellness courts. Nobody knows what happens, you know, what, those, what, what that entails. Do we have any idea what, uh, what that entails? You mean what it looks like in yeah. terms of a case-by-case? Case? Well, yeah, in general, what would a wellness court do, I guess? Is... 
I think what the Wellness Court does, especially with the Adoption and Safe Families Act provisions, um, that they really work with the families to make sure that there's some sort of a plan to help the families redress whatever is the, the causation for the child to be removed so that the child can go back to the family. Okay. Do you have any more? Yep. We are okay, here. all right. Get a long <laughs> list here. All right. Um, so one of the things that is a bright finding is that tribal and state cooperation makes a significant difference, that really a lot of this is all about relationship, but it can take years to cultivate. And the downside Centuries. is... Centuries. Yeah, um, but relationships get established, and then workers leave, either on one side or the other. Right. These are very stressful, demanding, overwhelming, high burnout positions. And you can have a relationship with a worker, and then three weeks or three months later, you call in, and the worker has changed, and you have to start all over again. So um, that creates a difficulty. And one of the things that was interesting in terms of the, um, the statements that we gathered is that non-tribal people tend to believe the relationships are better than tribal people. So tribal people come to these relationships with much more skepticism and distrust. And even when things are going well, there's always a, a wondering about, you know, is, is, this, is this really real? So um, that, that creates a tension. Yeah, I think that's pretty obvious that that would happen. Yeah. Well, it's obvious yeah. to you. It may not be obvious to the non-tribal people that um it's a good point yeah you know i think i think you and i have a great relationship and you may not so this is true (laughs) (laughs) we smile we joke Mm -hmm. we hug you know what what, what else is there um yeah okay and um now did you have um a uh sort of like an evaluation survey or something going on here you mean about our process well, about findings and... So here's one of the things. You know, there, our report addresses a number of the constraints that existed in this. And um, without funding and with minimal staffing, we had no capacity for verifying. So these, the data is truly qualitative. And we take everyone's statement as being true for that person from his or her perspective at that moment in time. And we have not had a process of verification. Okay. Uh, Last uh, question here, I think, is uh, what's being considered for uh, the reconciliation part of this? So what this is a good segue as well. So we are a long way from reconciliation. And as some of the people who created these founding documents, the Declaration of Intent, said is, we should just call this a truth process and not a truth and reconciliation process because we're so far away from reconciliation. So I think, you know, in fairness, for some people coming forward and having this opportunity, there may have been some reconciliation within themselves of their own history. But in terms of a larger reconciliation, we have not had cross-cultural dialogue. In some ways, the TRC has served almost as a triangulating device and that Native people have come and told us their story. Non-Native people have come and told us their story. We're holding that. We'll put out our report, and we hope that report will trigger more conversations and perhaps more healing and reconciliation to come. But in and of itself, this process did not get there. And our hope is that Wabanaki Reach, as it continues, 
will do three things. And Maria, you can talk more about this because this is where you'll come in. I'll fade away at the end of June, and Rabanaki Reach really needs to come forward. And yeah. their intention is to do three things. One is to uh, monitor the implementation of these recommendations. Two is to continue the healing in the communities. And three is to continue the ally work of building the support so that at some point down the road, as the communities heal, as the allies are formed, there'll be more opportunity and readiness for these cross-cultural conversations and dialogues. Okay. Uh, Maria, last word. Um, just that uh, at Maine Wabanaki Reach um, doesn't intend to go away. And like Yay. Carol said, um, we hope to be able to uphold those uh, recommendations and, and to at least make sure they're not forgotten about and to continue the journey toward healing in our tribal communities. All right. Thank you. So just wanting to say, Donna, we never did get to the recommendations. Those were the findings. And hopefully people will come to our remaining statewide events, one in Portland on May 27th, one in Augusta on June 1st, and our closing ceremony on June 14th, where we will have those to share. And our report will be online by the end of June for anybody to access. Right. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you uh, for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring. You've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. I want to thank my guests, Maria Gerard and Carol Wishcamper, for being with us today. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles, from his CD, Dreamwalk. Our engineer is Amy Brown. Tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows.